as we continue through Luke, if you would please turn to the ninth chapter. We begin a new chapter today. Luke chapter 9, and if you would, let me just read one verse from that chapter, late in that chapter, the 51st verse of Luke chapter 9 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So we're at a, um, a transition point in this gospel as we enter this ninth uh, chapter and uh, referring again to, <clears throat> to this map. <clears throat> this is the uh, Sea of Galilee. That's, that's Galilee. That's the northern region. And that's where everything essentially has taken place thus far. Uh, it is a, an area that is um, it's, it's just more gentle. Uh, topographically, it's more gentle, but it's also, uh, once you get down here to Jerusalem, where Jesus will, will go soon, uh, everything gets rougher. So he's had his disciples. He's chosen them. He's called them. He's performed and taught them, and now we're going to see what he's going to do. But they're still up here in this Galilee region, this northern region, but we soon are going to head south. Uh, normally that's a good thing, but uh, <clears throat> we'll see about uh, what happens later. But for today, we're, we're going to open this chapter, and again in this transition uh, point of it, but I want to remind you very quickly how we have gotten here to the ninth chapter. Uh, beginning in, in Luke, of course, you get the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, uh, Jesus' early life, especially uh, several vignettes of, of Jesus as a young, uh, young boy and his uh, attachment to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, John the Baptist prepares the way, and you get a genealogy of Jesus, as in chapter 3. Uh, Jesus, tempted by the devil, rejected at Nazareth, and begins a healing ministry in chapter four. He calls his disciples, continues healing in five, continues healing, ministering, pronounces his beatitudes and woes in chapter six, forgives sin in chapter seven, and delivers and explains the parable of the sower in chapter eight, where we have just come from. And we've seen that all of those things uh, have been conspiring to, uh, to illustrate for these 12 men uh, something that they don't yet have have a clue about. Uh, they they have been chosen and they have been willing to follow, but um, they don't know why totally. They're about to find out here in, in this ninth chapter. Uh, the rubber is going to meet the road. Uh, in a sense, uh, I know Phil Riken heads uh, toward an internship analogy here, which is not a bad one. Uh, internships in, in uh, reform circles are, are serious things. They should be taken more seriously than they are, frankly. That's one of the things that, that I find very, very strong here at this church uh, is the uh, duration and the, and the strength of the internship program. It's very essential. It will save years down the road as opposed to just uh, turning somebody loose when they get rid of, uh, get out of seminaries. Uh, but uh, this is about to happen with these 12 men. 
they're going to be sent out. Uh, they're going to be um, perplexed, understandably. They're going to be a little bit, uh, well, they're, they're each going to go through different experiences. But the power of the gospel is increasing as we move through uh, these, these things. The significance of Jesus is beginning to spread in that northern region of Galilee. He's even been over east of the Jordan River and uh, got rid of the demons and the demoniac and all of those. But those people told him to leave. And that was a poignant part, I think, of, of the last chapter when he gets back in the boat and crosses back to the west bank of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but the foundation for the future church and leadership and writing and all of these things that, that will lead to this book, this word of God, all of these things are forming now before our eyes as we enter this ninth chapter because these men are the apostles. They are going to be the foundation of the church because of their writings and this sort of thing. Uh, so we're moving now from addition to multiplication. Jesus would could heal someone and did heal, heal several people we've, we've seen, uh, but now he's going to uh, increase that. So we're going to begin with the commissioning of these apostles. Uh, first two verses of, of chapter nine will be their purpose. Uh, the purpose that Jesus gives them as they, they set out, it says, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Uh, I'm sure that that's, um, it would just be wonderful if we had the opportunity to speak with all 12 of, of these men and say, what were you thinking at that point when Jesus uh, calls you together they were not with him all the time. There's no reason to believe that. Uh, they had lives to live and, and uh, so forth. And, but he has, has called them together here, all of them, and given them this power and given them an authority that they have never, they've been more than happy to watch Jesus wield power and the authority he has. But now he's calling on them. And uh, in a sense, he's, he's beginning to establish what we would call the new Jerusalem, the new, the new Israel rather, uh, or better, the church of Jesus Christ. This is forming before our eyes as we see this happen. Remember in the Old Testament, you have 12 patriarchs. Here you've got 12 apostles moving out uh, to form this, this new thing we call the church. Uh, in verse two, he sends them out to do two things pointedly, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. In other words, preaching and healing, word and deed, those things have never changed. There is true, there is true, frankly, and a job description for you and for me today as they were for these men. Now we don't go out uh, with uh, the power to heal that these men uh, had and all of the, the authority that Jesus gave them. Uh, but we do have our own kind of authority and our own ability to heal through prayer and through, uh, through those kinds of things. So the, the job description that these 12 have uh, really evolves to us as well. The preaching, uh, go back to Luke chapter four, <clears throat> verse 43.
Luke 4, 43 says, but, uh, well, let me pick up on 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's Jesus talking. Uh, the preaching of the word is, uh, I, I remember in seminary days, uh, very, very good friend. I was, I was with him on a weekly uh, prayer time. Was, his name was Ed Clowney. He was uh, the first president of, of Westminster Seminary. Uh, they hadn't had one since it's, it, it went about 35 years without a president. And he was fortunate or unfortunate to become its first. But uh, a very, very wonderful man who, who so clearly grasped the verse we just read and the verse that we read in chapter nine of the imperative to preach the word. Uh, we were at seminary in the era when technology was beginning to, uh, to creep in and everybody was giving you these uh, indicators that, well, you know, of course, that when you say something within 10 minutes of you having said it, 99.9% .9 of the people will remember one word. So why in the world are you preaching? Why don't we have uh, drama? Let's let's bring dancing into the worship service. Let's 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 bring uh, put television sets all over the place and and put uh, razzle dazzle because if they see something in addition to hearing it, they'll remember. So uh, Ed Clowney was he was so stalwart uh, in his own way. He would simply say because God has created preaching for this purpose. And it's the preaching of the word under the power of the Holy Spirit that is, um, that is the means of the church and will forever be the means of the church. This is not going away. Uh, so Jesus, not surprisingly, is sending his apostles out and he says, preach the word. Jesus' primary mission, the apostles' primary, and uh, you and I as well. Obviously, there is a formalized preaching of the word by men who are ordained and, and approved, have gone through the, uh, the various steps of, of the presbytery calling process and all of that. Uh, but the teaching of the word, the ministry of the word, when you're standing across the fence from a neighbor, the word is, is that is what needs to go out. Now, the healing that these men are given, and they're given the power to do it, is in order to show... Uh, and authenticate this notion of the kingdom that they're going to be preaching about. Uh, Jesus has already uh, been doing that, of course, and the idea is that, that the kingdom has already come. Uh, these people in Northern Galilee have seen a lot by this point, and the crowds are building and, and so forth. So the apostles are given this purpose. Now, in verse one, there's also this provisioning, uh, this power and authority that we've seen, it's the power is the ability to do something and the authority is the right to do something. Uh, <clears throat> it, again, going to be unique in a sense to these, to these 12. Uh, they are going to be the foundation of the church. Uh, Paul's message in Ephesians, the third chapter, where he's really pounding away at that is, is uh, important to remember. He gives them power and authority over all demons, which is interesting, and to cure diseases. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, where you get the same episode going on with the apostles, Mark adds 
uh, that they are sent out by Jesus two by two. So he's going to multiply. He's not going to send them all together as a group of 12. He's going to send them out in groups of two. So you have six groups uh, going out who are going to be casting out demons and healing and so forth. The performance comes in the third verse, three, four, and five is the performance, the manner of conduct with which they are to move forward. Uh, Verse three says, and he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. There are a lot of fascinating things about these, these three verses that I think um, if you're a commentator, you're obligated to say something about every verse. Uh, I sometimes wonder exactly how much uh, there is to know of, of uh, being absolutely certain, uh, but I'll give you some of the insights uh, that I was uh, studying. Uh, most people see verse three as a notion to travel light. I have no problem with that one. Uh, really take nothing, which commentators generally were say, therefore your reliance is totally upon God. Uh, that's, that makes a lot of sense. I frankly don't know how much of that could be validated, but, um, but it's certainly the case that these 12 in particular, having had nothing but a layman's uh, visual observation of, of the Son of God and now being sent out on their own, um, they had better be relying on nothing but God uh, because they're not, uh, frankly, they are not and we are not uh, capable of anything without the reliance on the Son of God and on God himself. Uh, interestingly, this is not going to be the case forever. If you go to Luke chapter 22, Uh, Luke 22, verse 36. Now this is deeper, of course, into into this gospel story, but uh, 22, 36. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Uh, This, of course, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. This is in the, in the midst of, of uh, going out to, to pray in the Mount of Olives before the crucifixion. Uh, so this is when Jesus knows he is about to leave this group of people. And he's not sending them on a little internship snippet for them to get their feet wet. Now he's ready to leave them in the 22nd chapter and they're going to be, uh, they think at least, they're going to be on their own because Jesus is going to leave. Remember, they go to them and say, please, do you have to do this? Why don't you just stay? And Jesus says, no, it's actually gonna be much better for you that I leave because when I leave, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. That's why they are told to wait in Jerusalem to receive the Pentecost uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which from that point on, every single Christian has. Uh, So we are better equipped in a sense in a very real sense, frankly, than every one of these 12 apostles that we're reading about. Uh, But the point is, everything indicates that this initial Luke chapter nine foray into reality for these 12 men is meant to be, uh, let's go get our feet wet. 
and then things are going to happen. Of course, every single group of, of all those six groups, those groups of two, are going to have unique experiences and they're all going to come back together and talk about it. And that's another reason that I think there's no need to be planning for a lengthy stay. This is something that Jesus is doing as a training exercise for them, even though it is completely legitimate. What he's got to do, when you think about these 12, and we've seen this all the way from the calling of the, the disciples forward, uh, these men are called out of occupations that, that don't uh, necessarily lend themselves uh, to, to what they're about to become. And he's got, Jesus is building up the confidence that, that they're going to have to have in order to carry out the mission he's going to give them. Uh, interesting in verse four about staying wherever you're invited. Now, a lot of commentaries will interpret that as meaning uh, don't come into a town and, and look for the five-star motel as opposed to uh, if, if someone invites you, stay there and don't leave there. Leave the town when from that same location. Um, verse five is the most uh critical, I think, of these three, and that is wherever you are not received, leave. And then shake the dust off your feet. And the, the clear indication here, it says at verse five ends, as a testimony against them. So what's the shaking of the dust off the feet about? Well, it's a Jewish uh, practice when, when walking through any kind of, of Gentile territory, uh, it was uh, a practice to, to shake the dust off because you have been a place that is unclean. Uh, so what, what this is saying is that when a town will not receive the gospel, that town is unclean. That town has, has turned its back. It's, it's pagan, it's polluted, it's, it's whatever. Uh, it's certainly liable for judgment and therefore you indicate that to them uh, by turning and leaving the town. Similar to Jesus's effort there with the demoniac in the Decapolis where he's with them and the people all come out. The demoniac wants him to stay. In fact, the demoniac wants to go with him. The people say, well, we wish you would leave. And he does, he leaves. The reception of the gospel can go one of two ways. And if, uh, if people want not to hear it, uh, then... Uh, Sometimes Jesus will leave, sometimes come back, sometimes not. Um, this, by the way, is the first indication we've had of the storm clouds that are going to be with, with us throughout the remainder of this gospel because the gospel message is one that divides. It divides families. It divides everything and everybody because it is inherently uh, something that is that is true and people want to suppress the truth. Romans chapter one, verse 18, a very clear, uh, wonderful insider given uh, that whole second half of, of that chapter indeed uh, is very insightful. But uh, Romans chapter one, verse 18 says, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. When the gospel comes, uh, it's, it's going to go one of two ways. It's going to be suppressed. It's going to be um, doubted. It's going to be, uh, or someone's going to perhaps move toward it just as we saw with the demoniac. The demoniac 
before the, the demons are gone, the demoniac doesn't, uh, he can't really control what he's doing or thinking. But once the gospel has cleaned that man, he doesn't want to leave Jesus's side. And that is, uh, that is a wonderful, it's the thief on the cross again. Uh, the thief on the cross who is saved hears those words literally as he is dying and goes toward Jesus where the other thief hears the words, doubts, uh, blasphemes, and dies unsaved. This is, the, this is just, that, that is how the gospel is, is received, either well or less than, uh, than that. <clears throat> and this is an indicator to these disciples. They're going to see that. They've already seen it. Uh, with Jesus, so it should not have been a shock to them, but but it's going to be them encountering it uh, as opposed to Jesus going forward. Then in verse six, they depart. Uh, verse six says, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they're obedient. Uh, they go out, they go through multiple villages uh, in that Northern Galilee region and they are preaching and they are healing. Now, what is going to to be the reception. Well, Luke gives us in the last three verses that we're going to look at today, uh, verses seven, eight, and nine, one person's response. And this is an interesting uh, man. I'll read verses seven, eight, and nine. It says, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. That's an interesting response. Um, Let me give you just a little bit of background about this family. This is a fascinating family in the scriptures. Uh, the Herodian family, <clears throat> Herod the Great, uh, was roughly 73 BC to 4 BC, somewhere in that, uh, the 4 BC, uh, all those dates, I suppose, to wiggle a, a year or two. Uh, but Herod the Great was the man that killed all the babies in Bethlehem. You remember uh, that awful, awful. Now, he was, uh, a, a lot of historians, because he was also murdering wives, he, he had children from at least eight different women, uh, but um, he was murdering them. He, was, he became uh, what perhaps we would look at today as a paranoid individual at the end of his life, and that may have had some bearing uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, what he did was an egregious act uh, to try thinking that, that he could kill Jesus. Now, when Herod dies, he's dying just after Jesus is born. He has three sons. There were more than that, but he left his, his inheritance, we would say, uh, to only three of them. Uh, Archelaus, he made king of Judea, <clears throat> again, we're back to, to our map again. Uh, sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, Jordan River. Uh, all of this would be uh, Israel, we'll say. Uh, Judea would go and, and include Galilee. Uh, what, uh, what Herod does is he leaves Archelaus, the son, 
uh, with Judea and Samaria. So this this where the yellow is right here. That's that belongs to Archelaus. Philip, the Tetrarch, he goes up into this section. And Antipas, this is the guy we just met in Luke uh, chapter 9. Antipas, uh, he, gets, he gets this area of Galilee and another area down here, Perea, that's east of the Jordan River. Now, this guy, Archelaus, was none of these would, would be citizen of the year. Uh, but this man, Archelaus, is a bad, bad man. And he's doing a lot of bad, bad things. So much so that the Caesar in Rome, who has gone along with, with Herod to allow this division of, uh, of Israel, by 6 AD, the Romans kick this guy out and, and send him to Gaul, uh, Spain, France, wherever that, that was. So this guy doesn't make it, but about, uh, I don't know, three or four years. And he is so bad that even the Romans won't tolerate it. Now what's significant about that is this area, uh, this, this <clears throat> Judean area, this would be Jerusalem right about here, this is Bethlehem right about here, where Jesus is born. Now if you go to Matthew 2, verse 22, you'll see something very interesting. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, <clears throat> says this. Herod has, has killed the children. Jesus uh, and his family are returning. Jesus is still a baby. They're returning from Egypt. They had heard that Herod had died. Uh, but look at verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So because this man, uh, his reputation got, got around quickly uh, before he is evicted by the Romans, uh, Joseph and Mary are coming back. I don't know where they would have gone to, back to Bethlehem, back to Judea or Jerusalem, they were apparently planning on going back to Judea, but instead they go up here again back to Galilee. And that's how Jesus uh, gets back to Nazareth uh, because of this guy. The other thing that is very, very important to understand historically, when this guy is kicked out at a relatively early part of, of Jesus's life, 6 AD, the Romans, they're no more descendants of Herod that they want to stick in there. So they, this part, uh, this Judean part, becomes a Roman province, and they people it with Romans. That's how Pontius Pilate gets on the scene. He's going to be sent by Rome uh, to be in charge of, of this region eventually. He wasn't the first one after Achaeus, but he, he will be there when, when everything happens in Jerusalem. 30 or so years later. Uh, so it's, it's very, very important. Now, again, the guy we're going to bump into now in verses 7, 8, and 9, Luke chapter 9, is this man, uh, Herod Antipas. Now, that Antipas name is not anywhere in Scripture. He's called Herod the Tetrarch. A Tetrarch is a guy who's in charge of a fourth of something. Uh, this was divided four ways 
by the three sons, and there was a wife, one of the 13 or so that Herod had. Uh, he didn't give her any, any real estate, but he gave her the tax revenues from some cities down here in southern and southern Judea. Uh, so you're dealing with, with three areas here, but uh, when we run into this man, he's going to be called Herod the Tetrarch. So when you see Herod the Tetrarch, you're not dealing with Herod the Great. You're dealing with one of his sons who is in charge of, of the Galilee region. Also Perea over here, but the one of great import is up there in Galilee. So we're going to have to deal with this man, in other words. Uh, so verses uh, 7, 8, and 9, we read Herod the Tetrarch. That's Antipas. He heard about all these things that are happening because they're happening in his district. Uh, they're happening all around him. Uh, one of the things that, that uh, he managed to accomplish was building a capital city of Tiberias, which is on the, on the Sea of Galilee, on the uh, south, really almost due south, a little bit west of, of due south on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where his capital is. He moves the capital of Galilee to Tiberias. So he's, Jesus is really all around him and the disciples' teams have gone out all around him. So he's heard about these things. He is worried because he was the Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. Wasn't Herod the Great, it's this man. And you see here in the text, he heard about what was happening, was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. That John that they're talking about is John the Baptist. And Herod is saying, oh my goodness, I hope that's not the case because uh, I was had this man's head removed. So he's, he's perplexed, it said. And that's a fascinating word uh, to use. I'm sure, indeed, he was perplexed, uh, concerned with the fact that maybe John the Baptist uh, has been raised from the dead. Uh, but the point, again, is that the, the gospel preaching and all of the healing is, is spreading. Um, <clears throat> we're going to run into this, to this guy again in a minute. Uh, Verse eight, somebody says, well, maybe it's a prophet of old come back to, to teach and preach again. And verse nine, he says, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. We have seen that question come up repeatedly and Jesus pushes people to ask that question. That is the central question. Who is this Jesus? That's the central question that everybody, uh, you, you want them to ask and you want them to ponder. And the answer, of course, is, is given us in, in all of the Gospels. Uh, <clears throat> he sees, he wants to, to meet him. Now look at Luke chapter 13. I want to show you a couple of more times that this, this man we're dealing with here, Herod Antipas. Luke chapter 13, verse 31 and 32. Jesus is, is uh, he's, he's now back down south. He's in the Jerusalem area. That Verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. That Herod is this man, Herod Antipas. His father, Herod the Great's dead, long, long dead. Uh, Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, meaning 
Antipas, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Um, let me give you another Luke 23. This man is going to show up again and play a role when Jesus is, is uh, in Jerusalem and the events around the cross are occurring in Luke chapter 23. That, that chapter opens beginning in verse one, this way. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent saying he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. Verse six, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So you see what Pilate is trying to get off the hook here, uh, trying to avoid responsibility. He said, wait a minute, you tell me Jesus is a Galilean, then he's under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas because he's the Tetrarch up there. And I happen to know that he's in Jerusalem today as we speak. So verse nine, uh, excuse me, um, verse eight, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Think about it. This, this guy wanted to, to kill him back in chapter 13. He was perplexed by him in chapter nine. Uh, now here in verse eight of chapter 23, when Herod sees Jesus, he was very glad, but he had long desired to see him uh, for he had long, but because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. You see how, how those who oppose the gospel, again, there, there are two fathers in this world. One, God the Father, the other is Satan. Uh, if you're going to be allied with Satan, then you're going to hate everything about uh, Jesus and so forth. And this certainly is, is illustrated by this man, uh, Herod Antipas. <clears throat> so he sends, he sends Jesus back to Pilate because Jesus refuses to talk to him. Um, so, so Herod, they're both trying to, trying to get off the hook here. But before he sends Jesus back, he abuses him and encourages his own soldiers to do the same. So uh, as we go forward, I will alert you to which uh, Herod we're talking about. But from this point forward, uh, you're going to be running into this man, Herod Antipas, who was a Tetrarch of the Galilee region. But as we see, he's going to play an important role all the way through the public ministry of Jesus. Uh, he's asking this here in chapter nine, he's asking the right question. 
but it's not out of a genuine desire and openness to hear what he's saying. He wants to kill Jesus. He knows he's beheaded John the Baptist. He knows he's done a lot of other things, which is an indication of, of the fact that a firm decision is required. You probably, like me, you've, you've had friends who've been fascinated by the Bible. They've been interested in the Bible. Uh, they have they have feared the Bible. They have been suspicious of the Bible. They have been perplexed of the Bible and the story of Jesus. Uh, that's well and good, but it won't get across the finish line. The only thing that gets across the finish line is belief, firm decision, belief, saving faith. We talked earlier about that uh, that. Cat, K-A-T. I've got to have knowledge of Jesus. I've got to agree. I've got to assent to the fact that the knowledge I read in scripture or from someone who's talking to me is in fact something I believe to be true. But I haven't gotten thorough faith until I put my trust in it and change my life because of it. And this is something that this man is going to have trouble with and we're going to see the disciples run into more people like this as will Jesus now, I want to close with just a couple of implications. <clears throat> implications as we begin this, this new chapter, if you will, uh, in the life of Jesus, because you and I live in post-Christian times and a post-Christian culture. Uh, there was a book, uh, a man named Francis Schaeffer wrote somewhere around 1980 or so, uh, called Death in the City. It's a very, uh, very good, good book. Schaeffer's Writings, by the way, are conveniently and, and beautifully formed into a five-volume set, easy to read. I really highly recommend uh, the writings of Francis Schaeffer. Uh, but uh, this, this particular book, Death in the City, he calls attention in particular, uh, again, to Romans chapter 1. I'll just read a couple of of verses that were important uh, as Schaefer was going through this. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 uh, says this, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's exactly what everybody does who turns their back on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they exchange the truth for lies. As we saw back in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, they are suppressing the truth. That's a volitional act. They are saying, I hear what you're saying, and I don't believe it, and I don't want to hear it any further. Uh, so Schaefer is using that as, as sort of a foundation stone for this book called Death in the City. Um, <clears throat> Christians today in America need to acknowledge the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, just as these disciples were doing as we began verse 9, or chapter 9 of Luke. Uh, to go out into the culture and preach and live the kingdom of God in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Again, exactly what God sent these 12 to do. Uh, we too are called to preach, to teach, to witness the gospel. We too must go forth in his power and authority. We too preach, teach, witness to Christ as Lord and Savior of this universe. Now, Schaefer goes somewhere in that book, uh, an astounding illustration uh, he makes of this. 
the kind of attitude that would be needed to have uh, this acceptance of the gospel and this zeal toward going out with it. Um, Romans 7 verse 4 says this, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. The import is on the last part of that verse. Why have we become Christians? In order that we might bear fruit for God. Uh, so that we may belong to another, that verse says. Again, Romans 7, chapter 4. In order that we may bear fruit. Schaefer then goes to Mary and presents her in a, in a light that I have never considered before. Um, <clears throat> he says, consider Mary hearing about the Annunciation, being told that she is going to give birth to the Savior. <clears throat> and he says she did not respond by saying, I won't give myself to God in order that the Messiah may be born. After all, what would Joseph think? Now, that would be a very understandable response. And in fact, as, as we, you know, when we see Joseph's initial understanding of what is, a, is uh, happening that Mary is pregnant, he's, he wants to divorce her. He wants to separate from her. Uh, <clears throat> and what Schaefer says is Mary did not say, I'm not going to give myself to God because it would get me in trouble with my husband. Nor did she say, now that you've told me what is to happen, I can do it on my own. That's, that's an important, uh, what she said, according to Schaefer, I am your servant. I give my body into your hands, do with it as you will. And that is Schaefer's illustration of, of this notion of fruit bearing for the Christian. It's exactly what Jesus is calling these 12 men to do is exactly what he calls you to do, me to do. Forget about ourselves, give ourselves fully to God and obey his commands. And his commands are to go out, take the word, live, teach, illustrate, pray for all of the things that, um, that come through discipleship. Uh, get back to Romans one more time. Romans chapter six this time, verses 13, 16, and 19. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. I'm speaking, verse 19, in human terms, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Uh, next week, we're going to dive deeply into, uh, into this ninth uh, chapter. This, these first nine verses are this, it, an interesting transitional period with these 12 men. But now it's going to shift, uh, shift back and, and it's going to be coming 
uh, very, very fast and, and fervently. Uh, but again, the bottom line never, ever changes. Go out, believe the word, live the word, speak the word, illustrate the word, point to Christ, and stay on your knees. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you that uh, even in these small snippets, these, these uh, vignettes of, of things that we may not feel are that important, what we're learning in them is, is the foundation work, the paradigm, uh, the example, uh, the, the heart that is asked and indeed demanded for the Christian, uh, that we, like Mary, uh, even though that young woman was stunned by the unique news that she received. She did not rebel. Uh, she did not uh, fall away from it. She simply and humbly opened herself, giving her body uh, to what was transpiring in it. And uh, Father, help us to understand the importance of that attitude in life. It's not us. We don't need to be in charge. We're not in charge. Seek and we will find. Ask and help us, Father, to be obedient, to obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.